Welcome back to One of Two Hundred, the New Zealand and international independent politics and media podcast. You're here with Philip and Branko. It's just two of us today. Um, we've leaned down the organisation, taken all the advice of the uh, financial advisors who came in, fired all the dead weight, and come out faster and more agile than ever before. How are you? <laughs> How are you doing, Branko? Good, good. Yeah, we uh, we actually hired Christopher Luxon as our uh, special consultant, and he suggested for the, the great efficiency of the podcast, basically just cut everyone. Just me and Philip. Actually, uh, he, he also told us just cut the number of laptops that work. Um, so that's that's actually been a really fun thing uh, this morning. Is, uh, <laughs> really putting that, that, that advice to the test. <laughs> yeah, if you hear any um, electric demons, that's because my... Uh tech systems operating at operating at probably the least efficient capacity it could be right now so apologies for any weird sounds or quirks that come up <laughs> i mean look it's it's not uh what you would describe as intuitive or common sense advice but uh he is a successful ceo so i'm inclined to to take his word for it let's let's just keep cutting and and i think eventually things will start looking up when you're that when you're that rich and you wear a suit that well surely whatever you're saying is correct right it doesn't it doesn't really matter beyond that you can you can stop after the the visual aesthetic of someone who looks like a business leader yeah exactly yeah i mean he's he's, he's got all that stuff he's got shirts suits shoes <laughs> i mean every all the the usual businessman uh attire you know the gear that, that that us mortals don't have so for sure what more could you want right well uh before we get to christopher luxon which which we will certainly get to uh why don't we open the, the show with a with a discussion of uh a, a little bit of a fun event that happened in new zealand uh of course uh vaccine mandates we were talking about this just before the show started continue to be a hot topic uh in new zealand not just in new zealand but around the world um somewhat divisive uh i still believe majority support in new zealand not quite as popular as they were uh but but still popular but some people aren't very happy about them um, including the the uh, landlord of the, uh, the the famous Whammy Bar in in Auckland uh, on, on Auckland's K Road, um, uh, Paul Reed, the 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 landlord left the Whammy Bar a like a bad review online, uh, chiding them for for having vaccine uh, passports, I guess, to get into the bar, uh, saying it wasn't very punk rock, which that's gonna sting, coming from the. <laughs> The front man of Rubicon, uh, one of the most punk bands uh, <laughs> in not just New Zealand's history, but really just music history in general. Yeah, the, the history of punk goes, um, there's, a, there's a gap from basically between uh, the Sex Pistols to, uh, I guess, Birthday Party, maybe. I'll allow an, an, inter- an kind of interruption there. And then Rubicon, obviously the most rebellious kind of uh, anti-establishment organization to ever grace the, the screens of New Zealand in the early 2000s with their oh, yeah. anti-establishment message about naming babies Bruce inappropriately. <laughs> people, people forget, but that song, uh, it, it caused riots. Uh, I <laughs> met a person named Bruce born after 2004, whatever, whenever that came, song came out. I think it's 2004. <laughs> I mean, it made a huge impact. Uh, people were not happy about it. And by the way, there's nothing more punk rock than uh, eventually uh, 
ending your band, uh, buying some hipster glasses and uh, starting a property investment company and becoming um, a, a property tycoon. Probably the most punk rock thing. I mean, if you think about, you know, fighting the establishment by driving up house prices and just generally kind of adding to the misery of, of people in Aotearoa and making it completely unaffordable to live, um, you do increase the likelihood of riots and protests and anti-government uh, sentiment. So, I, you know, he's, he really is uh, doing the punk rock thing, um, you know, on a level that, that I would say no punk rocker has ever done before this. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you get this effect, right, of people saying, we remember when, when uh, Trump got voted in, there were all these um, liberals kind of saying, well, at least we'll get some good music out of it. This kind of like <laughs> chin scratching um, equanimity, I suppose, from like the centrists who are performatively like, ah, but this is how good art is made. So yeah, you're right. Maybe maybe Paul Reed is doing the greatest service to our artistic uh, pursuits of being pro-punk rock by making it basically unlivable to live in New Zealand um, through house price increases. Yeah, I mean, you, you got to hand to him. I, I seriously though, I I did not realize that the the guy from Rubicon slash Shortland Street was a a real estate tycoon. That that is a I, I actually did not. I missed that story until um, this particular incident happened. And, uh, and it, I think he made something like more than $4 million just flipping houses uh, in the, like over the six years to, to 2019. He was like, he was making 50, 50 grand a pop from every house he flipped. Um, I mean, there you go, plot twists abound. Yeah, there's this, um, this Kirstie Johnston article uh, in the Herald from 2019 saying that Paul Reed closed at least 130 trades over that period of time at an average of $70,000 per deal uh, profit, which is wild. Like what a way to live your life. That's punk rock. <laughs> yeah. Well, the thing I'm wondering is what happened to the other two guys from Rubicon? Like, are they part of the company that he started? Is he cutting them in or is he kind of, you know, has, has he left them out of the, the, the massive profits he's making? I think the um, lobbying for Bitcoin companies and um, probably working for Fonterra at this stage. That's what you have to do. <laughs> well, it's good to know that, you know, the, the, the leading lights of New Zealand's pop culture industry, um, when, if, if the music thing ever kind of goes pear-shaped, they can always find a home flipping houses. You know, that's, <laughs> that's really why we have the, the entire uh, insane real estate sector we have. It's just to give musicians and, and actors who can't get work anymore. Uh, you know, just a, a solid day job. Um, Second life. Yeah. It's like he, he read all of the, the bad reviews of Rubicon's music and was like, well, if you think that's bad, watch <laughs> what my next five years work will do. <laughs> I can do so much more damage <laughs> than just these songs. Uh, well, uh, as, as fun as it is to, to uh, make fun of the, the guy from Rubicon, uh we we do have to to sort of uh make fun of some other people uh in this particular case uh we want to talk about christopher luxon the national party leader here in new zealand uh he has kind of stepped in a few rakes caught his foot in a few buckets recently uh phil do you want to give us a little bit of a, a rundown of, of some of the the pratfalls and and so on that that, that luxon sort of um experienced in the last few few days and weeks yeah, yeah. So um, on the back of 
a couple of really positive uh, polls and kind of increasing media favorability, I suppose, especially for Christopher Luxon and the National Party. There's been, um, I guess he, he felt maybe he was doing too well and needed to reconnect with the, the everyman um, by coming off just extremely ill-prepared and kind of stupid, for want of a better word, um, on several things. Like the biggest and most obvious and kind of funniest one has been the um, public transport subsidy stuff. Um, in that there's there's been this discussion of uh, 50% subsidy off public transport um, to get people through this living costs crisis. And there's a, a very badly kept secret that there's probably going to be something in the budget to uh, continue something like that from the Labour Green government because um, they're big fans of increasing use of public transport. Mm. Yeah, so he was asked about this uh, going into Parliament and his response was the sort of thing you'd hear in maybe a first-year microeconomics lecture. Um, <laughs> uh, subsidies are bad. Um, things need to stand on their own two feet. We shouldn't be propping up um, these kind of uh, handouts to, to transport businesses, which, you know, coming from the, the ex-CEO of uh, in New Zealand, which was bailed out entirely several times, slightly on the nose, perhaps, uh, to walk into government and say that's the exact sort of thing we shouldn't be doing. Um, but just despite that, the fact that he seemed completely unprepared for what was probably the biggest issue of the day uh, when he was asked about it was very, you know, bad look politics, according to the the way that it's judged in New Zealand. Um, and even people like Audrey, uh, Audrey Young, who are normally very pro-national, are saying, like, well, this is a bad look. He needs to be more prepared in future. And when they got back to him and said, well, are you aware that most of public transport uh, fees are already subsidised by the government? And would you, um, would you decrease that to 0% subsidy, uh, which would, you know, increase the cost of public transport in New Zealand by something like four times? It would be much, much, much harder to afford to get around the cities in New Zealand uh, and between cities than it is now. And he, he basically said, well, that's, that's the goal. That's how you run an efficient economy, right? Um, but also that I haven't, I haven't thought too much about it. <laughs> well, I'm not to do that before you announce a, a policy or a, or a position or something. That's, that's not, it's not a big deal. I don't, know, I don't know why we'd expect the uh, leader of the opposition uh, former transport spokesperson, um, you know, leading kind of business light in New Zealand who assisted the Labour government with their uh, business and transport plans for years, was CEO of Air New Zealand for years, this kind of uh, leading light of LinkedIn kind of figure to have an opinion that he actually thought about for more than five <laughs> seconds. Like that's, that's the impression that he was giving off, was really like man at the pub who's never seen a document before vibes. Like, I don't know how much of this is performed if he's trying to come off more Simon Bridgesy, um, <laughs> or if he actually just has never thought about these things. Yeah, I mean, it's first of all, I would imagine like a, a politician's answer to that question would just be you, you just deploy your your second boilerplate talking point. You know, when you've been when when the thing that you propose is is shown up as obviously uh nonsensical and 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 flawed and and that you haven't thought about it you don't say well that's because i haven't thought about it you just give your your second answer where you just sort of ignore the point that the reporter is making and you just sort of you know 
re-stress, whatever. That's usually what most politicians would do. It's it's surprising to me that he just went for the, I'll be honest with you, I have no idea what I'm talking about at all. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's an it's interesting fun. approach. Um, but in all seriousness, uh, it, it does speak to, I think, um, something, something very real, which is that, look, we all know politicians, they're not the, the fountainheads of wisdom for every single topic. Of course, they have staffers, uh, and, and, and allies that are feeding them information, that are telling them, here's the position that you should take in this, here's how you should think about this. We all know that, of course. Uh, and, and frankly, it's, it's absurd to, to expect anything more, given the, the massive range of issues that everyone has to think about. Um, but in this case, you know, it's, it's uh, not just that he didn't know what he was talking about, but that his, despite not knowing, uh, the, the thing that he went to immediately is, well, we just have to, we have to cut. We have to cut subsidies. We have to get the government out. The market's always right. And uh, he was shown very clearly that taking that as your knee-jerk kind of response to anything, um, I think for, for most cases, but particularly in this one, doesn't make any sense. Um, and, you know, it should really, I think, worry people that if someone with that kind of ideological uh a reflexive kind of uh, position on something that just no matter what my answer is always going to be we have to cut things and, and have less government regardless of whether I thought about it, regardless of what actually that means in practice it's not really a good thing um, you know and, and it's not just public transport it, that, that could extend to all manner of different issues imagine if climate change you know the position is well we you know the way to solve climate change is less government uh, more market um, completely nonsensical but you can totally see uh, Luxon and the National Party sort of uh, adopting that standpoint. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Gordon Campbell had quite a good uh, piece on this a couple of days ago um, that sort of started from that point and then, you know, I think made the the hard to deny point that Luxon would be treated a lot more harshly if he were a, a woman instead of a very white, very businessman, very rich uh, kind of person. Um, which is obviously, you know, a societal thing, a media thing, an inequality thing. There's a lot of aspects to that, um, the kind of gendered imbalance. Um, and it's just, you know, there's no, there's no kind of measurement by which you could say that he could come close to matching Jacinda Ardern in terms of like an understanding of politics or policy or anything that you'd hope that a political leader would kind of be good at, right? Um, understanding people, any of that. But I don't know if it's going to make much difference in terms of polling, right? Because the, the people who've come back to the National Party um, are kind of wanted to be there all along, right? They were, they were just, they were on a little trip away because they needed to protect themselves. Um, and there's been this kind of return home. Like if, if voters were kind of rational actors who read the news and went, okay, uh, who's going to be the best to lead the country? Then you'd expect that something like this betraying like, a surprisingly radical um, hardline neoliberal perspective from the leader of what's meant to be a kind of broad spectrum center to center right party. Um, something that honestly you'd expect more to come out of the mouths of act during John Key's term, right? Um, John Key would never have said anything like that. He'd, he was prepared. Um, he would have at the very least been dishonest in a popular way. <laughs> <laughs> He would have flipped to cost of living. Well, part of the cost of living problem is that we have uh, a lack of talent who wants to remain in New Zealand, blah, blah, blah. That worked for him in opposition really well. And then when he came in, there was the, uh, you know, we're going to start all these, this engine of productivity and a brighter future and all this kind of stuff. But 
Christopher Luxon doesn't have the political nous to do that. Like he's a he's a baby in political terms, right? So I think we're going to see more of these kind of obvious slip ups that mm. even a, a backbencher with like three years would probably not have made that that mistake. Um, it's just really basic stuff that like if he didn't have a spotlight on him would have come and gone straight away. But when you've chosen, I guess, to kind of throw yourself into the spotlight in the hardest job, job in politics, um, you're going to get that. You're, he's going to make all these dumb mistakes and we'll see how much they stick to him. I, I feel like they won't because everyone wants an alternative. Um, as we talked about when uh, Judith and Jacinda were running against each other, there were these kind of constructed like demonologies around Judith being everything that Jacinda wasn't um, when in a lot of ways she's kind of a liberal content continuation of a lot of what Jacinda championed economically and in terms of like social policy she was never as harsh as people kind of wanted her to be um, but we we in the in the media in New Zealand and politics especially I think we want this kind of extreme narrative where one side is everything good and the other side everything bad or right or left or whatever but really there are so many similarities along that spectrum that it stops making sense after a while but it's interesting that Luxon has come in and kind of been dubbed the next kind of great unifier has pulled the party back together um, got the kind of key voters to start coming back to him but what he's saying isn't what key would have said it's much more like hardline actish kind of policy it's almost like brashy in, in terms of like economics right yeah absolutely and it's interesting as well the way that you know we talked about this before the way the media kind of uh can act as a kingmaker or can act as a as a as a you know just a, a steamroller uh if the if the if they feel like it of course uh um God, his name is suddenly slipped my mind uh national leader for for like two weeks um god but Mueller. Todd Muller, good lord. Um, sorry, but I'm 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 working on like four hours sleep. Did you forget? Did you forget Muller mania? <laughs> most exciting turn of events. Well, what's funny is that Muller, you know, Muller had a pretty uh, even besides the the uh, kind of MAGA racism accusations, had just kind of a disastrous launch where he was just constantly putting his foot in his mouth. Uh, and uh, I mean, Luxon hasn't had much better. I mean, we we've discussed in previous weeks things he said that have been. Uh, pretty major, uh, I don't know what you want to call them, gaffes or, or just missteps. Uh, but the funny thing is that, that he's treated very differently. The, the media kind of treats him as just inherently kind of competent and, and serious and, and, and uh, you know, they knows what he's doing. Whereas with Mueller, the, the narrative was kind of like, this guy is useless and he's way over his head. And he's also, by the way, a, a clan member, but <laughs> like that was sort of, that was the narrative aside on. And uh, whereas the, they really kind of destroyed Muller very quickly, they're, they're not doing the same with Lux. And even though, you know, I, not, I'm not saying that, that there hasn't been critical uh, coverage of him because there definitely has been, but it hasn't been quite as sort of all encompassing. Um, but uh, another example where, where uh, recently where, where Luxon's kind of knee jerk um, neoliberalism or anti-government ideology came into it is, is with the cost of living crisis, where just this week we saw that uh, grocery food items, uh, but particularly fruits and vegetables, uh, the inflation rate for those, uh, I think, was, was close to 8%, um, which was actually higher than the general inflation rate. So, so what's happening with food is it's, it's actually there's something that's making it 
worse than general inflation. And of course, what people quite rightly point to is the, the duopoly that exists in, in uh, New Zealand uh, food service and supermarkets. Uh, and of course, what is um, uh, Christopher Luxon's answer to this? It's not what we've talked about in the show and what the Commerce Commission suggested uh, to, to, to have a, a third government run, a publicly run supermarket chain uh, that, that injects some competition. No, it's uh, too much spending, we need to cut back spending. So another case where, you know, in, the, in this case, no one's going to take him to task for this because I think a lot of people actually buy into the, a lot of people in the press buy into this idea that inflation has caused, uh, in this case, that this inflation we're seeing is being caused by, by runaway government spending, which is not true. But, but they buy into it. So no one's going to say, but, but wait, Mr. Luxon, that doesn't make any sense. And then force them to go, well, I haven't actually thought that much about it. Um, <laughs> so he gets away with it. But it's the exact same thing. It's, it's yeah. just whatever uh, happens, the answer is always less government, less spending, less government intervention, more letting the market run amok, which is exactly why we have this problem, because the market does run amok. Um, and, and just to, to give a little bit of background for, for audiences, uh, you're referring to voters kind of coming back to national. Part of that is in, in recent weeks, we had uh, national, I think, took in like a, a $1.8 million haul, a lot of money from, from very uh, prominent wealthy New Zealanders, uh, more so than they had under Judith Collins. Um, and also recently, uh, some polling among SMEs, small and medium-sized enterprises, uh, found that um, uh, they were very unhappy with the Ardern government. And I think by a margin of something like 42 to 25%, don't hold me on those numbers, something like that, they prefer Luxon as the prime minister of Ardern. So uh, we're seeing kind of, as you say, uh, that classic national coalition starting to, to come back after the brief honeymoon around COVID. Um, they decided... Luxon's good enough for us and we're and we're not happy with our done we're moving back yeah exactly and i mean just that's a good uh example of how ideologically incoherent thinking about uh polling and voters like this is right because if you're a, a small medium enterprise person a small business owner or maybe a, a manager at a medium sized business and you've seen the um the huge amount of money that the Ardern government pumped in to that uh, sector during COVID to basically prop it up while they weren't, um, while people weren't buying stuff <laughs> for obvious reasons. Um, to to go from that to supporting someone who says we need to cut government spending, we need to not be supporting, um, not pouring money into things that aren't looking after themselves, aren't standing on their own two feet, kind of thing. You that on the face of it looks like an ideological contradiction, but it's not right because people don't vote. Um, on these kind of ideological platforms. They want something that looks and feels like it's gonna benefit them. So um, Luxon's sort of barely getting started, but he is trying to construct this kind of vision, I think, this like um, the, the John Key illusions are always there, but there's also um, kind of an almost maybe Blairist kind of like techno-competence, technocratic competence kind of thing that he wants to inject. And he has all these uh, very like business heavy people um, on staff, there's been some reporting that um, he's got some very impressive kind of names out of the private sector to do comms and stuff. 
Um, and these people don't care about politics as as a thing, right? They don't they don't care about policy. They're great at branding. They're great at these like constructed corporate narratives. So there'll definitely be more of the kind of um, brighter future kind of stuff and and less of the the detail. And it'll be it'll be really interesting to see how that holds up against um, Ardern, who's famously extremely good at being across detail. Um, when that starts being kind of a louder uh, competition. Um, through the year yeah yeah no no for sure and and one last thing i would add about this this development is uh you know again one of these things that we we said would happen we we said it a long time ago that that you know these these voters that labor got uh that were normally national voters they weren't going to stick around uh and, and the reason i say this is not so we can take a victory lap or whatever over, over being right in our predictions but to explain why uh, why that logic was faulty and why I think Labour really squandered an opportunity. Um, Grant Robertson recently did an interview with, with uh, Newsroom. He was talking about how, you know, obviously Ardern came in saying, we're going to run a government for everyone. We're going to govern for all New Zealanders, right? Um, this idea that, that ultimately uh, they'll just sort of smooth out any kind of divisive policies and just just run the ship so everyone was happy and he said you know with this majority they had this historic majority they had well you know we didn't go crazy with it we didn't do anything crazy and i mean okay well sure you didn't but what what exactly did you gain from it you know that that's my question because ultimately um the the the, the voters that i guess you were hoping to maintain to to keep on your side uh they they even though you did everything bent over backwards for them um and and very much kind of ignored your own base uh you know poverty is is, is way back up uh people are, are struggling with the cost of living people are just very unhappy in new zealand um uh it, it didn't do anything i mean it didn't keep those people so you, it, it essentially it, it's sort of it, it was a waste of this this incredible uh power and i mean that that comes down to really uh trying to have this fantasy where uh two completely different interests interests that are in fact directly opposed to each other can somehow both be appeased at the same time and and you can't you know labor tried to sort of keep its traditional base keep the kind of you know working class voters and middle class voters while also doing all these pro-business uh, policies and sort of, you know, being very, very sensitive to what business wanted. And, and ultimately, I think a lot of their approach ended up going on the side of, of what business wanted um, and it didn't work. And, and at the same time, things are only getting worse for, for ordinary people in New Zealand. And the thing is that those two things cannot be reconciled. Uh, the, the interests of business are directly opposed to to what is the best thing for for workers and, and working families um you know i don't know if they've they, they've learned that lesson it sounds to me from that from that interview with grant robertson that they they think that they've actually done a really good thing um you know despite the fact that none of the structural problems that that are promised to solve going in in 2017 have been remotely solved and in fact anything they're, they're way worse than they were yeah, and I mean, just as a very quick digression, add on to that, it's the same thing with uh, environmental concerns, right? So if anything, maybe the fact that they won 
um, this historic majority has actually slowed their ability to solve these problems because of these self-imposed limitations that they they put on themselves. So now they now they want to keep those um, still, I think, minority number of farming votes that they received in 2020. Um, but they, you know, they see that they're making ground in the polls and they go, OK, we need to maintain that. That needs to be the focus um, instead of sort of skipping the step and going, well, why? Why are we getting these votes? Why are we in politics? Like back to square one. Why are you a politician? It's not to keep the votes that you got last time. That shouldn't or it shouldn't be the kind of be all and end all of, of being a politician. Um, that should be the means to the end of actually achieving something that you want to institute or pass. Um, so this kind of Hiwake Kanoa framework that's had a bunch of industry voices um, deliberately slowing down any ability to uh, bring agriculture into kind of doing its fair share to slow climate change. Um, there's been a, there was a kind of embarrassing walk back from James Shaw when he said um, that cow numbers don't have to fall, or maybe they do, or in certain circumstances, maybe they do. And he's the minister of climate change and he's in the Green Party. Like, <laughs> this kind of moderation and just kind of cowardice out of politicians um of course it kind of makes a mockery of any ability to treat them seriously when they're presenting solutions and yeah obviously labor has some people like uh michael woods has been very kind of bold and forthright about fpa stuff um fair pay agreements and there's been some good stuff around raising minimum wages but that seems to be in the minority like the kind of kitchen cabinet center of the very centralized power in the Labour Party, Jacinda, uh, Grant, Chris Hipkins, Megan Woods, all seem very centrist, very centrist, very technocrat, very, very, very willing to compromise <laughs> at mm. the drop of a hat, right? They'll get Business NZ on the phone before they get uh, someone from the CTU, for example. So it, yeah, it's just, it's become a pattern, eh? Yeah, absolutely. And, and well put. Yeah, exactly. Uh, keeping voters is, is not an end. It's a means to an end. The, 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 the end is doing stuff. It's, it's getting your political program over the line. Uh, and, and by the way, National knows this. You know, uh, they, they look at the policies they put forward. Yes, they, they try and appeal to, to everyone rhetorically, but they're not really sacrificing um, their, their core policy program to, to, to try and win over working class voters. They know who... Who, who, who butters their bread, who their, their core constituents are, and they appeal to them. And it's that $1.8 million that they just made, right? It's very obvious <laughs> who their constituency is. Yeah. And, and look, as repugnant as, as I think that, uh, that statement he made, you know, about, the, about bottom feeders or about, you know, we don't, we don't do bottom feeding is, um, it is an accurate uh, uh, statement about, I think, uh, or a reflection of, of their mindset, which is, you know, we, we're not going to appeal to the people at the bottom. That's not, that's not who is going to get us over the line. We need to get the people that, that traditionally vote for us. We need to get them excited. We need to get them behind us again, um, which Labour has unfortunately uh, forgotten. I think they've forgotten that the people at the bottom are meant to be their core constituents. But uh, yeah. yeah. I mean, you'd love to hear something out of Labour like, um, you know what, if you're a, if you have $100 million, don't vote for us because you don't need support and we're not here to support you. Um, just something that actually shows that they understand that there are divergent interests, right? Mm. And by, by legislating in favor of one group, you can be doing more harm than good to a different group. And there's very little, um, I guess, class understanding, right? Or power understanding, it seems like. Yeah, absolutely. If, if you want to pay for, uh, you know, an ambitious new program, uh, say free dental care, for instance, 
you need to find the money somewhere. You don't want to cut existing services. So, you know, what, what do you do? You have this massive pile of untaxed wealth that is being hoarded by a very small number of people. Um, and you, you have to tax them. Uh, in that case, someone loses out. And when I say loses out, I mean in a very small way. They'll, they'll still have a lot of money once the, the, <laughs> they've been taxed. But someone loses out and someone wins. You, you can't balance those two things. Yeah, um, Paul, from, Paul from Rubicon maybe may have to go down to only making $40,000 per house that he flips <laughs> instead of 70, right? Um, in exchange for dental care and mental health, for example. Um, but that's like, these things can be in contention. It's okay to say that they are. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, well, okay. That, that's, uh, uh, we've had a bit of fun today. Uh, I think now, unfortunately, we have to go to a, a, a much more uh, serious and depressing topic, which is the war in Ukraine now in close to its second uh, month. Um, and more alarmingly for New Zealand, of course, it's, it, you know, we're all horrified watching these images from, from far away uh, and, and the videos and, and hearing about all the atrocities that are happening. Um, but now uh, we really have a direct stake in what's going on because with seemingly no debate, uh, no real discussion, um, doesn't even seem like anyone's even really saying a note of caution, like, hey, why don't we slow down and think about this? Uh, New Zealand is slowly but surely getting deeper and deeper involved in this war that is, couldn't be further um, physically, geographically from, from New Zealand, couldn't be further in terms of national interest to in New Zealand. Um, as terrible as that war is, and, and as all wars are, New Zealand has no direct interest in, in what is happening in Ukraine. Um, and yet, uh, we are seemingly um, have, have sort of abandoned our neutral status, abandoned our pretension to an independent foreign policy and uh, have just thrown our, our, um, our chips in with, with the United States and, and, and NATO and, and uh, Western Europe. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we, yeah, announcing further contributions has gone from, uh, you know, the first kind of more cautious steps that were, you know, quote unquote, non-lethal, whatever that, whatever that meant. I'm, I'm skeptical. There's as hard line between that and, "Quote unquote lethal contributions," as as I'd like to hold up that there is, but um, even setting that aside, uh, we've yeah committed a Hercules, uh, fifty support personnel, eight NZDF logistics specialists, uh, thirteen point one million dollars military legal human rights support, um, and this is after donating money directly to NATO, which was I think a first, um, and for some reason caused almost no stir in New Zealand. Um, which I thought was just incredible. Look at like previous statements from any kind of, uh, you know, international New Zealand spokesperson uh, who's held out our independent foreign policy credentials ever. And donating money to NATO is about as far from that as you can get. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, we also uh, have seemed to have abandoned our traditional uh, position of going through the UN. Uh, where we're no longer seeking any sort of resolution or, or solution through the UN uh, or trying to get UN um, sign-off on what we're doing, but we're just saying, no, no, we're just going with, um, with, with, with NATO and the United States. Uh, I, I think among the other support, we, yeah, we got soldiers down there who are going to be supposedly 
handing out the military equipment to Ukraine. Uh, we're, we're also, we have some intelligence personnel in I think Belgium and, and elsewhere, maybe in the UK, I can't remember the other country. But, yeah. Right, okay, yeah, so, so providing intelligence support to Ukrainian army. I mean, you know, that is, if you're starting to give weapons and you're starting to give intelligence support uh, to a, a, a one-sided war, uh, that's about as close as you can get to entering the war without actually entering it. Um, now, look, all of us hate what's going on over there. Uh, we all are disgusted by it. We, uh, we, we want the war to end. Of course, we want Ukrainian human rights to be respected. We want Ukrainian sovereignty to be respected. The question is, um, however, what are the risks here? Um, you know, this war continues to be a, the, the closest in my lifetime uh, and potentially the closest we've ever come to, to full-on nuclear conflict. Uh, some say we're, we're closer now than, than the Cuban Missile Crisis. I don't know if I agree with that, but, but I've heard that case, certainly. Uh, this is not a, a, a light thing. It's not a small thing. Um, you know, one of the good things about New Zealand is that we're so far away that whatever horrible stuff is happening in Europe, America, the Middle East, uh, we, we're not involved in it. We're, we're, we don't typically face any blowback for it. I'm, I'm, to be honest, I'm shocked that we have faced as little blowback as we did for our um, contributions to, to the uh, war on terror and, and to the illegal wars that, that uh, were involved in that. But we did avoid it. Um, now we've got soldiers over there handing out weapons at a time when Russia is threatening and now it seems to be really more seriously threatening to attack weapons shipments to say weapons shipments coming from nato are legitimate targets um we've taken the side i mean we're sort of the government again without any debate has potentially made us or put us in the crosshairs of any nuclear conflict that 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 is going to come out now look i mean a nuclear conflict that happens if it happened would be horrific for new zealand anyway but, you know, at the very least, we might avoid being directly hit by, by you know, some sort of uh, uh, nuclear missile. Um, now I'm, I'm not so sure. Um, and even if we don't, I mean, that's New Zealand uh, service members who, are, who are, we're, we're, we're putting the lives at risk of. You know, New Zealand's core, the, the core interest of any government is to defend the, 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 the security and the lives of, of its people. And we've, we're, we're sacrificing that. And sometimes you do have to sacrifice that. Sometimes that, that is the appropriate thing to do. But we have not really had a discussion about, is this the right war for us to, 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 to put that on the, on, the, on the chopping block, to say, yes, we're willing to risk New Zealand lives, New Zealand security? And if it is, I mean, yeah, obviously I, I agree. It's a tragedy. Um, and there are, there's pretty convincing evidence of, of war crimes coming out. Um, the you know in the in the kind of fog of war it's very hard to tell what's accurate and what's not accurate but definitely horrific horrific things happening um, all around the country um, but if this is the time like I think I think it's time for some kind of healthy what aboutery like if if <laughs> this is a war if this is a war where we should um, throw our lot in completely with an attacked nation why why this one and mm. not any of the other wars that are going on as we speak right now. There are plenty of other um, internal and external armed conflicts going on around the world. 
uh, and there have been for decades. And we've mostly maintained uh, a sort of relatively sanguine um, position on that, apart from, you know, excursions into supporting the war on terror um, to our kind of shame. But yeah, there's been this, I guess, increasing uh, integration with the GCSB and Five Eyes, for example, supplying information to the kind of Western Anglosphere. So I think the, um, the claim to being an independent, having an independent foreign policy and being this kind of uh, fair actor that came into international situations with kind of eyes wide open as to the different um, geopolitical political interests at play and being able to talk to different people in the kind of way that, you know, in the past Norway's held out, it's held itself out as being able to kind of mediate conflicts in foreign countries and different nations have often sort of been better or worse at these things. Um, but I think New Zealand would like to be able to think of itself as that kind of nation, but we've been losing uh, plausibility on that for years as our um, intelligence integration with the, with the States and Five Eyes has become closer and closer. Um, and this really just, I think, puts the nail in the coffin or, you know, pulls the blindfold off, depending on which metaphor you prefer, um, of that kind of vision of ourselves. And we're essentially in, you know, in, in all but uh, military capacity, uh, basically a vessel of kind of capital interests and the US, right? Like, what other possible explanation could there be for throwing our lot in completely with this war in particular and not any of the other horrific wars. Yeah, I mean, uh, we've talked about this before, but the, the Saudi war in Yemen, which is backed by, by France, the UK and the US. Uh, uh, I mean, if you think what's happening in Ukraine is horrific, and it is, then you would be uh, shocked to the pull by, by what the war in Yemen has, has involved. And I, people are talking about genocide in Russia. I don't think this war at least from what we know, rises to genocide. And the same way that I don't think Iraq and Afghanistan rose to genocide. I think those are just terrible wars and atrocities. Yemen is close to it because the Saudi coalition, which again is backed by the West, uh, has bombed food stores. It's, it's, it's bombed dams. It's, it's deliberate. It's targeted residential areas at about the same rate as, um, as, as military targets. Uh, completely... Um, uh, uncaring about civilian casualties, uh, really horrific stuff. Just today, you have Israel again um, uh, on, on Ramadan attacking and, and violently suppressing worshippers in the Al-Aqsa Mosque. Um, of course, that's a that subjugation of the Palestinians has been going on for, for decades, not just years. Um, you know, I I keep wondering about what exactly is the rationale here because it's sort of beyond standing up for human rights, you know, New Zealand's a long-standing commitment to human rights. Um, that's sort of one of the only things I can think of, but we, we've stood up for human rights in the past, including in the Israel-Palestine uh, situation, not by sending soldiers and, and, and uh, weapons to one side of that war. We've never done that before. Uh, we, we've always talked about a, a resolution through the UN through negotiation. So what is it about this particular war that we've decided that, that, that it's worth us doing this? Um, you know, and I read this um, piece in, in the newsroom by, by uh, Robert Patman, who is a, a specialist in international relations at the University of Otago. And the piece is called New Zealand's Stake in Opposing Putin. And I was curious to actually read what, what the stake is, because, I, you know, again, we don't really have any sort of direct interest in, in, in what's going on over there beyond wanting to do the right thing. 
and his point basically is that if we let uh, this go unchallenged and if we let Russia sort of beat Ukraine and we don't help Ukraine fight Russia off, which by the way, there's no indication yet that any of the, the weapons that we're sending beyond increasing costs for Russia are actually going to change the military balance. Russia's, Russia's still winning this war at the moment. Um, his point is that, well, if we, if we don't do this, then the, 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 the international rules-based order will, will collapse. And, and of course, we all have a stake in that. That's true. But it's a bit of a sleight of hand because as we talked about with Yemen, with Israel, with other wars, this is hardly the first illegal war where a nation's territorial sovereignty has been violated by, by a, a, a more aggressive power. Um, you know, Iraq war, which we took part in, we, we sort of gave some support by sending in engineers to that effort. The Afghanistan war, where, where we were on the ground from the very beginning, um, taking part in that. Uh, Israel, just the other year under Trump, annex the Golan Heights, uh, an outrageous violation of international law. The United States right now uh, is recognizing um, uh, Morocco's annexation of Western Sahara. Uh, so there's all sorts of violations happening. I think if you're going to make the case that, that we have to do something because this war violates the international order, you have to explain why it's this war and not every other illegal action that I just mentioned, and then so many more that I haven't mentioned, which no one does. And that to me tells me that this isn't really about these principles that we all believe in, as, as we should, but it's about something else. It's about signaling what side we're on in this, uh, uh, what seems to be a developing Cold War with Russia and China on one side and sort of the West and the other. And, you know, part of the debate that we should be having, part of the discussion that we should be having is, do we want to pick a side in this? Do we really want to throw a lot in with one or the other? We know how disastrous it's been for New Zealand previously when it's uh, blindly followed the, 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 the dictates of, um, and interests of, of, of Western powers. Uh, hasn't, hasn't done much for New Zealand, but beyond just sort of getting lots of, of, of young people killed. Um, and in this case, you know, we, we also have to think about the fact that China, our largest trading partner, is, is one of the countries that we were we are ostensibly starting to kind of uh, pick a side against. Does that make sense for New Zealand interests? I don't I don't know if it does. Um, I would love to hear a counter argument, but but again, there's absolutely no discussion of any of this. We are just kind of blindly, you know, uh, Leroy Jenkinsing into uh, this conflict without really thinking about the the, the ramifications and border questions around it. Yeah, absolutely. That's really well put. Um, the only article I've seen in New Zealand um, that seems to have even begun to treat these issues with the seriousness uh, I think they deserve is Matt Robson's article in Stuff called Sleepwalking to War. NZ is back under the nuclear umbrella. Um, Matt Robson, uh, longtime politics nerds will <laughs> recognize his name, uh, but he was the former Minister of Disarmament, Arms Control and Associate Foreign Minister from 1999 to 2002. Um, Labour Party, pretty unambiguously on the left of the Labour Party, I'd say. Um, pretty kind of solid voice in the independent foreign policy kind of uh, sphere. And yeah, he makes, he makes these points in terms of China as well. Uh, and 
says the much the, the point that you just made that throwing our lot in with NATO isn't just about this this one event, right? This is sure this is one um, horrific uh, world event that's going on right now, but we live in a world with all sorts of things going on. And in terms of the trajectory of what NATO's up to, their strategy is encircling and disempowering Russia, but more importantly, China. That's the that's the strategy, right? So throwing our lot in on this one issue is extremely risky when it comes to the zoomed out, the much more macro issue of geopolitical interests and strengths um, going forward. So he has here, let me uh, read his line at the end. Uh, we need to study the plethora of US and NATO strategy documents on the public record, not as part of some clever Russian disinformation campaign as some would have it, that have planned for Russia to be embroiled in a war with a well-armed and well-trained Ukrainian military with a shock troop of neo-Nazis. Then cabinet needs to realize that even bigger target for NATO is China. New Zealand has been drawn into that game plan as part of the ring of countries, either nuclear armed or under the protection of nuclear armed countries that the United States is thrusting in the face of China. So, I mean, that's the next target, right? In terms of the long, if we look 20 years from now, um, you know, fingers crossed, God willing, inshallah, uh, Ukraine won't be, uh, completely disintegrated there'll be a functioning uh civilization there um but where will there be these other uh proxy battles right and if we're going to be as reactive and uh western-led as we have been in this instance i think that doesn't bode well for the future of the pacific because that's that is right in our in our backyard <laughs> not in an ownership sense but in our backyard in terms of it's on our it's on our doorstep yeah absolutely and i think the people who, who I think a lot of people uh, genuinely believe that this is going to help Ukraine. You know, I, I don't think, I don't think the majority of people uh, in New Zealand and elsewhere support this kind of thing because they're, they're like, Oh, this is yes, we, this is part of this grand geopolitical strategy that we have in our heads that eventually we will take on China. No, I think people, people want to help Ukraine and they've been convinced because there's been no alternative uh, uh, solution offered aside from military solutions. I've been convinced that this is the only way to help Ukrainians. Um, but I think people need to understand that the uh, officials, the policymakers in the United States uh, and chiefly in the UK have, they might say in public the things that you say that, that they want to help Ukraine, that, that they want to stand up for Ukraine. But in private, in reality, that is not their strategy. They have a completely different strategy in mind. Their strategy, and this is well-documented, I'm not going to go into all of it because it'll take me half an hour to, to, to list everything, but it's now pretty well-documented. But the, the US and British strategy is to uh, turn Ukraine into a Vietnam or an Afghanistan-style quagmire for Russia to weaken Russia so that eventually, um, you know, they can, number one, weaken China because you're, you're taking out one of its principal allies, but you're also taking out a longtime geopolitical adversary in the form of Russia. And at this point, you know, Biden said that thing about Putin uh, needing to, to, to be removed from power, which people sort of said, oh, that was a gaffe. But there's been a host of reporting that, and, and even just public statements by, by Boris Johnson and others that have said that explicitly from way earlier that, that they said that the goal here is regime change. 
obviously Putin's a bad man. Obviously, we don't want him power. But that is a crazy idea. The idea that we're going to uh, take topple Putin from power uh, using this. And by the way, that's that's going to be completely fine. It's not going to end up in all sorts of unintended consequences and all sorts of disasters after that. Uh, so number one, they have very different they have a very different strategy. They want to turn Ukraine into a permanent war zone, which is not good for Ukrainians. Look at how Afghanistan turned out for Afghanis. Look at how, I'm sorry, Afghans. Look at how Vietnam uh, turned out for the Vietnamese. Look at how Iraq turned out for the actual Iraqis. It's not fun living in a war zone that, that where, where war is never ending. Uh, beyond the fact that, that they have a different strategy um, to, to what most people on the ground do, I would remind people just recently, um, Mark Milley, the, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, said to uh, Congress, I believe, that, that part of what was happening in Ukraine is they were sending China a message if it, if it attacks Taiwan. Essentially, you know, they're using Ukraine as an example um, uh, to say, by the way, this is the kind of cost you can expect if you do something similar. So again, it's not about U Ukrainians for them. This, for, for the people who are actually running policy, they're thinking of wildly different uh, motives and, and strategies. Second of all, if we want to actually help Ukraine, um, which I think we all do and we all should, uh, it's beyond a shadow of a doubt that New Zealand's contribution to this war is, is functionally nothing. It doesn't do anything. It's such a tiny contribution that it's not going to have any measurable effect on anything on the ground in terms of the fighting um so what exactly is the best way that we can help ukrainians one very obvious way is to uh take a lot more ukrainian refugees you know 10 million people have been displaced in that country uh we should be taking them in with open arms which would actually have economic benefits for us by the way um but we should be accepting them very highly educated population we need skilled people <laughs> In healthcare and all manner of other industries that we've we've uh, driven away out of the country, but partly because of the, the horrible immigration policies we pursued over the last um, few years. Why don't we take them in? But what has the New Zealand government done? We've taken in what we've said: if you're a Ukrainian already here, we'll, we'll take some of your family. And by the way, we'll just give them special visas so they're here for two years. And then, by the way, then we'll just send them back. Not exactly doesn't speak to any sort of grand humanitarian uh, motives among the New Zealand government, does it? It suggests actually that, that we don't really care about helping Ukrainians. This is mostly about us signaling to the club, the Five Eyes Club, the club of, of Western nations that we will do whatever they want us to do. Uh, because if we really cared about doing Ukrainians, if we actually wanted to make a measurable impact to helping them, we would say, we're opening the doors. We are going to create a special refugee category that's going to take in you know, this many people, a lot more than whatever it is, 2,000, and we take them in. And we might actually do the same for, for other people affected by, by, by conflicts around the world, but we're not doing that. So again, even in New Zealand, I think there's a difference in motive between the ordinary people, people like us who want to help Ukraine and, and Jacinda Ardern's government, um, what they are trying to do uh, uh, out of their response to this war. Yeah, that's fantastic. I think that um, kind of wraps it up nicely right there's a there's a different in interests there's a different in, difference in strategy and just a difference in in the way that we conceive of politics right um between humans on the ground mere mere mortals like us <laughs> and the the reified uh geniuses working in on policy documents behind uh just under our 
um yeah but i think we should wrap up there thanks for coming along for another week we've been one of 200 uh like our like our things share our things tell a friend about us if you're listening on the radio awesome kia thanks for dropping by um we love it that's that's really nice to see come and rate us five stars uh find our website uh one of 200.nz uh yeah we'll catch you next time Good guys, cheers. The relentless routines, the dying embers of your dreams, is the lie aspirational. Will you die keeping your glass half full? The relentless routines, the dying embers of your dreams, is the lie aspirational. You die keeping your glass half full You don't hate your nation You hate nationalism You don't hate your nation You hate nationalism